What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Mixed Tapes. My next guest is the lead singer of the band Little Caesar and has a new book out called Judge This Book by Its Cover. Really looking forward to this conversation. Welcome to the show today, Mr. Ron Young. How are you doing today, sir? Hey, thanks so much for having me. Oh, man, thanks for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. First question I always ask every guest because I always love asking this question is, do you remember the first music moment that made you want to pursue music? Um, I do. It was... It, 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 I write about it in the book. It's basically when I was six years old, I had the audacity to jump up with a cover band at this big pool, and I sang My Baby Does the Hanky Panky. <laughs> and everyone thought that was absolutely hysterical to hear a six-year-old singing a double entendre about having sex <laughs> and being six years old, and everybody laughing and clapping, and it was like doing a shot of heroin. And that stuck with me for years and just how enticing and and how how seductive that sensation is. Absolutely. It's it's hard to chase it too when you have a opportunity to to end like, you know, being six playing in front of people, but when you start playing in front of people, there's nothing like that feeling. You know, being a fellow musician yeah, myself, you, you can't beat it. No, you can't. And and you know, when you're six and you can't even see that come to fruition until you're in your twenties. It was a long, a long wait. You know, oh, so. of, co- of course. <laughs> yeah. Are you, so. uh, are you playing sports or anything like that when you're a kid, or are you just right into music? Yeah, after I that? played. No, I played little league. I played football. I played all that stuff. I was actually in high school. I was on the gymnastic team. Oh wow! Now, to be honest, the only real reason I joined the gymnastic team was to because the guy gymnastic team got the spot. The girl gymnast team. And at the time, these are, you know, leotards and tights on 16, 17-year-old girls. And being a 16, 17-year-old boy, being able to grab those great little bodies, it was totally driven by my testicles rather than my athletic ability. But was that a lot of fun? did Did you get a lot of crap from your friends being on the gymnastic team or no? I didn't care because... They did it first because I was here. I am in these blue, basically like tights, you know, guy gymnasts are wearing like, you know, the tank top, the matching school. And we were powder blue and like a sort of off red color. And guys in gym would see me and give me crap. And then they'd see me walk through the guy's gym and they'd walk into the girl's gym and they'd peek in and see me hanging out with all of these girls in skin tight leotards, they shut up pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, is there an extra spot for me on the team? Right. Right I'm like, hey, I'm like, Somersaults and stuff. Yeah. That's amazing. Hey, we're here definitely to talk about your book, and I don't want to give too much away on your book, but I want to do a little full disclosure real quick. Um, I was not a fan of your band, um, but it's not because I didn't like you guys. I didn't know about you guys. And when I was, but here's, what's cool about it. When I started reading your book, it was almost like you were answering questions that I had about your career. And it was because I'm, I was listening to the records while I was reading the book and I was going, you know what? The first record sounds too produced. And then I get to the point where I'm reading about Bob rock and I'm like, holy shit. Okay. That that's there. Or I'm thinking like, you know, why did they lead off with chain of fools as their first single? You know, and then I get to that part of the book, which 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 I thought was cool. And I thought the other thing I really liked about the book was, and we're I'm probably about ten years younger than you. 
that was like my demographic of when I was growing up playing in bands in high school. So I remembered the band name and it was it was almost like a nice trip down memory lane of like what that was really like, not what I was seeing being, a, you know, a high school kid, but what you guys were going through. And I cannot believe the amount of stuff you went through in your career, just like, you know, with with record companies and and the images and and how they perceived you as something that you weren't. Um, so let's talk about can we talk about record contracts to start off with and and for the listeners of my show that are are you know musicians it's changed a lot obviously but can you give the listeners an idea of of what it was like having that contract and then almost kind of being tied to the contract where you knew you didn't yeah. want to be in that contract anymore well i'll i'll do a quick story which will illuminate what your answer your question i think pretty well in like the year 2000, some attorney decided that to, to give a good example, I think this was in the LA Times, of just how exploitive record contracts are. He took a standard, what they call a boilerplate record contract for a new band, and he took out any reference to music and put in this fictitious product and sent it out to 10 other lawyers and said, would you look at this and tell me if you think this is a good deal for my client? And the client would be the one that's making this product. And every single one of them wrote back going, this is the most one-sided, ridiculous contract I've ever seen in my life. Do not sign it. And that's pretty much what it is. Record companies, especially back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, I mean, obviously the expectation of it is legendary as so many artists have sued their record companies. But basically all the protections are written in for the record companies, basically saying that we can't guarantee you're gonna have success. We can't guarantee that you're gonna make money. We're not gonna guarantee this, not gonna guarantee that. But you have basically sold your musical soul to us for whatever the term of the contracts could be. And we can dictate what you can and can't do from an artistic standpoint for however long that we're going to do it. And not only that, they'll write in the fact that because we're going to do work with you for five years, we don't know how long that success might carry over. So even if this contract ends, we're going to get a certain portion of your career in the next contract you sign because we've helped build up that equity. And it's incredibly exploitive. But the reality is, is that, you know, especially once it hit the 70s in music, and there was so much money being made by artists like Peter Frampton and Boston and Zeppelin and Rolling Stones, the money was just flying in because music was such a huge part of people's lives that bands were like, yeah, we know we're going to get ripped off. But even then, there's so much money to be made in doing concerts and doing tours and selling merchandise they went along with it system. So that pretty much has stayed in place since day one. It's a one-sided affair that record contracts, you know, when things go well, you know, everybody seems to be pretty happy. When they go bad, oh boy, do they go bad. And that's exactly what happened to us, where just as quickly as we put this sort of wonder team together, um, as soon as it hit a bunch of, I mean, 
a historic amount of screw-ups that happened in a four-week window that wound up completely torpedoing the band's career. And for all of the huge, powerful people that we had, you know, the pinnacles in the industry we had working with us, the other thing about pinnacles of industry is they don't want a loss on their, on their scorecard. They want to hide the losses and only magnify the successes because, you know, they've got egos and they've got reputations and they've got salaries. To protect. So in a nutshell, that's exactly what happened to us. And it was a crazy ride. That was a big uh, chapter for me to read. I believe it was a two album deal you guys had, right? Was that correct? two albums with 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 a with an option for three more five album deal? If we sign the largest record contract ever given to a new artist in the history of the music business back in nineteen eighty nine. Wow! Yeah. And and you yeah. and when you when you went over to when you did the whole Geffen thing, the David Geffen, when you went over there and it was Nirvana, which I love how you describe Nirvana in the book. Which which was amazing to to hear like oh we got to have this this band to just kind of make us make us more diverse as a label and they go up you know I mean we know about what happened when, yeah, when, we, when we signed with Geffen we signed with Geffen Records at the time Geffen David Geffen decided to start a subsidiary label for new bands and call it VGC and he was going to launch that label with three acts Little Caesar this couple of really cute guys named Nelson. Yep. And what they described as this little college indie band that is kind of a little pet project. We just think it's kind of cute called Nirvana. <laughs> so Insane, right? They had no idea what they had what what they had signed and how huge it was going to be. It upended the whole record industry. It it really did and you, and and think about you know for a second for for my listeners that's only three bands they're launching. So the amount of, wow. of TLC they're giving you has got to be insane. The record comes out, and you guys sell what? I think it was 160,000 copies in two weeks, right? Yeah, yeah we, we launched really hugely. And yes, we were going to be three bands on this little small boutique label. The, the interesting thing is, is that when, when they were going to release Nelson, Nelson was battling just to get video money out of Geffen at the time. And... It was spearheaded by this this guy that was gonna take these three bands and break them. And unfortunately, you know, being under his guidance wound up biting us in the ass because he had his own crash and burn right as we released our record. He he wound up getting fired for ejaculating on his secretary. Under, <laughs> Which is under in the, the book. <laughs> yes, under the influence of cocaine and ecstasy. I mean, huge in, his in, in the industry. And unfortunately, we happened to catch him in a period of his life. You know, and again, this is not news. This was in the LA Times. So this is not, I'm not outing anybody right. for something that they did. Um. You know, and we just caught him at it at the worst part of his career, and it wound up, you know, pardon the pun, falling on our desk as well. <laughs> you know? But um, yeah, it was just one of those things in a very long list in a short window of what happened to the band on the negative side. Let me ask you this. During that time period when you're dealing with, you know, labels and people in that 
in the label itself. It, it, the, the Nelson thing you bring up where in, you say in the book that they couldn't get video money and they looked the part where it's like, how are you yeah. not giving this band money for a video? Hello? Was, was the average age of the people involved with the company older and out of touch? Or were they younger people that just didn't get it? I, yes. I, that's where I wanted to, to ask and you this, that. This is the thing. When, when you go to corporations, especially, remember, at this point, Geffen Records is red hot. This is Guns N' Roses. This is Aerosmith. Black Crows just got released. So they're like the one of the preeminent, hottest labels in the industry. What you don't know is there's 260 acts also signed to the label you've never heard of. They don't talk about that. So they get you to sign up with them and you're working with them. And unfortunately, you have these titans of the industry, guys like John Collot, guys like Eddie Rosenblatt, guys, you know, all of these people that are in charge of these departments who they start to think they are bigger than the actual acts that are on there. It's I have this theory I write about. It's called my Benjamin Franklin theory. And my Benjamin Franklin theory is, is that these record companies sign an act and they forget that they didn't discover it. And the way that like Benjamin Franklin discovered electricity, he didn't invent electricity, he just discovered it. And there's a certain thing inherent within electricity that will knock you on your ass if you don't show it some respect. Record companies would get into this point where they thought that they invented the bands rather than just discovering them. And then they start sticking their thumbprint all over it because every one of these people wants to be able to say that they had some sort of magical input that they put in to make something be successful. When nine times out of 10, like a classic example, I wound up becoming friends with Alan Niven who managed Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses, right. And he tells the story of how you know, they, re they released Welcome to the Jungle like four times before it really took off. And even when it started to take off, Geffen's going, well, we sold like 400,000 records. Let's move on. We think this is milk as far as... And Alan's going, are you kidding me? This is just the beginning of a juggernaut. And he had to fight him tooth and nail to keep the money flowing on a promotional side to release more singles. They just figure, well, here we have this band that's like five seconds away from imploding because they were, you know, they were Guns N' Roses. They were drinking and partying and fighting and not showing up for concerts and everything that they're legendary for. And the label figured, well, let's just kind of quit while we're ahead and move on. And Alvin had a fight tooth and nail when they didn't even have enough foresight to see what they could become. This huge multi multi-platinum thing with five singles off the label off the record they didn't see it and this is the kind of lack of vision that a lot of these people possess in the corporate world that is a lot of times for the detriment of music and for the acts that they saw yeah you're not wrong about that at all I, I, and the guns and roses i remember that because i remember them not playing uh Welcome to the Jungle until like two in the morning, you know, and then I remember it was really Sweet Child that kind of broke them, broke them. And if Sweet Child never gets put out as that second single, you know, then there's no Paradise City. And then that record doesn't become one of the biggest debut record selling exactly of all time. Right. I mean, a lot of it was, you know, because Ricky Rockman had Cat House. Right. Right. Here in L.A. 
And so Ricky was good buddies with the guys in Guns N' Roses, L.A. Guns, Little Caesar. I mean, Ricky, you know, it was L.A. It was just, and Ricky's, you know, besides running Townhouse, he's got, you know, Headbangers Ball. So he's playing his buddy's videos at two in the morning and the phone, no, who is this band? You know, and so the label didn't have the foresight to see it. It just happened to be where friends are helping friends out and people just, it just happens organically and builds up ahead of steam. And even then they don't realize just what they're holding on to. Was that scene back then like, because I feel like the glam scene started first and then more like the, the, the good gritty blues rock started after that with where you had you guys, Guns N' Roses, Raging Slab, you know, a lot of those bands that you could put in that category. Was there a lot of competition, you know, on the strip back then? Could you feel that it changing from like the more dressed up glam stuff to more the, the more rock and roll influenced by like the Aerosmith, the Thin Lizzy, that type of vibe, but you guys were bringing it into that next level? Yeah, no, there was actually two scenes going on in Hollywood. And there was the glam sunset strip scene. And then on the east side of Hollywood, there was like clubs called Raji's. And, and they were more of the, you know, where Junkyard came out of. And yeah. Guns N' Roses were playing, really Guns N' Roses were playing at Raji's and these other places. You know, Axel had his hair kind of teased up in the beginning. I, I remember that. Like, I don't need to do this crap. It's, it, I can just be a lot more where he wants to be an Aerosmith and he wants to be, you know, more of a straight ahead rock band than an actual glam band. You know, Slash never looked like a girl, you know? Right. So, <laughs> you know, he was always in his top hat and his own thing. And Izzy was, you know, he, he related more to the Rolling Stones than he did, you know, anything else you're totally reading my mind you, and i think that was the power of that band and bands like yours like when i when i'm listening to the first record and listening to the second record too you know i wanted to see the difference between the two records and obviously those questions keep getting answered in your book as i'm listening it was a really cool experience and and um we are plugging your book and having a great conversation but i do really want to say to my listeners this is something that is not only a great book, Ron's story is amazing, but it also gives you a, a sneak peek into that time period. You know, the stories about Kiss, you know, being on tour with Kiss and like the, you know, does Kiss want to tour with you or Winger? Well, Winger's bringing more money in, so that's who Kiss wants. And you and the way you handle it in your book, I thought was great, where you're like, it's a business decision. You know what I mean? They're bringing more people than you guys are, but at the same time, you I, did you even have the record out when you were on the road with Kiss? I can't remember. It just hit the, it just came out, like, we were, we were on tour for about two weeks. Record wasn't even out yet. So the way that came about was because we were managed by Jimmy Iovine, Winger had dropped off the Kiss tour because the label forced him to do so because they didn't hear a strong enough singer. So there's this big opening on the Kiss tour. Jimmy and Gene are friends, and Jimmy's like, ah, Gene, help, help me out here, put my band on tour. And Gene's like, sure. So we start going out there, and... We're out there for two weeks before the record even comes out. Next thing you know, we're all over we're in heavy rotation on MTV. And Gene doesn't really care about that because it's going to take a while before we're actually drawing people. This is early on. And Kiss's concert ticket sales went in the toilet as soon as Winger dropped off because Winger was a more popular band at the time than Kiss was. 
really kiss winger and slaughter were the ones really bringing the kids in. Right. And when winger dropped off, ticket sales really took a nosedive and Gene needed to get him back out on tour. And sure enough, they were off tour for, you know, we were only out there for six weeks and winger's record was ready to go. They, they went in the studio right away, had a single, the label liked, finished it off and were ready to come back out. So Gene had a, get us off that tour really quick. And that was one of the things that bit us in the ass too. Can can I ask you, and, and if you don't remember, it's totally cool. <laughs> Do you remember the leg of that tour you played? Like what part of the country you were on? on that oh yeah, tour? of course. We, we were in the Northeast and Midwest. We were up in, you know, Maine, um, you know, the Boston area, down through Ohio, through Indiana, um, you know, Michigan. All through and there, and, and I tell you, Pennsylvania, and I got to tell you, you know, because like it, it was the big joke. It would say on the tickets, 8 p.m. doors, and a, like a week or two into the tour, when we're all over MTV, Gene starts making us play at 7.45. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. It's like, okay, we're playing. The doors aren't even open yet. We started playing. By eight o'clock, when when you know when the doors are finally open, we got fifteen minutes to go. But even with that, our strongest fan base comes from the areas that we played when we were on the tour, and it just shows you the power of what playing to a whole bunch of people when they get to actually see you live, and you know they get to meet you after the show, and the the loyalty that you build up um is really quite astounding did you have the bullshit of like you can't stand here you can't you can't be over here all that stuff was that is all that stuff true about like you're only going to get a certain amount of lights you know yeah, that you, type you of only stuff get half, you only get you know you get 30 percent of the lights and half the pa that's all you get we had one sound check <laughs> we never got to we, the first night we were out there we sound checked gene listened to us at the sound check Never got another sound check. So we would go out there. Not only go, would we start at 7.45, but it would be, okay, kick drum, please. Thump, 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 you know, while the crowd is flowing. <laughs> wow, man. that's And it's pressure, too, because, you know, you're the singer. Guitar players, if you can't hear the guitar player in the monitor, man, you're in trouble vocally, right? You yeah, know? Yeah. But, you know, fortunately, you know, listen, even with the story about the monitor engineer, Kiss always had great crew, you know, and so we learned, you know, the, the, the engineers knew pretty much where to throw everything up in a, in a rough shape to get started. And it sounded good enough for us to go. Now, was that that was your first like welcome to the league tour, basically, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Who did you play yeah. with that? Who did you play with after that? Because I'm sure the label kept you on the road for a bit, right? No, like I said, it all imploded while we were on tour. With oh, I didn't know that. I thought yes. even though everything was crazy, I thought you still got to tour at least. No, wow. no, we can't. We, like I said, within a four week window while we were out on tour with Kiss, we the label got sold and our records weren't in the stores because we went from this distribution to BMG. So we're, we're on heavy rotation of MTV. And you couldn't find our record in the stores. Right. I remember that. And you had, you had Jimmy Iovine announce that he was starting Interscope Records 
And David Geffen called him up and said, well, I want to do you. I want you to distribute your new label through my label. And Jimmy told him to fuck off. And David got angry and decided that he forced us to fire Jimmy Ivey because in the state of California, you can't be a manager and a record label at the same time. So we were forced to fire Jimmy Ivey, the label manager. That's when he had his little explosion on his secretary. Right. <laughs> and so all of this happened within three weeks. So wow. we're just sitting there like I'm on the phone back home going, what happened today? Are you serious? Wow. And as soon as it was done with Kiss, we get home and we're like, okay, we've got no more manager. We've got no more label manager. The label has been sold. I start doing all of these like billboard and rip mag. All these people are calling me up for interviews. What happened? How did this go so badly, so quickly? And I start telling the truth to the trades and David Geffen gets really mad. So now I'm on David's hit list, you know? So all of this happened with the three walks. So when we got home from the kiss tour, crickets, it wow. was, it's time for you guys to just go and start writing another record. We're like, we only released like one single. What are you talking about? And it was you a know? cover too. It was a cover tune that we didn't even want on the record. So, it was just, at this point, everything that could go wrong went wrong. We got a new manager. The new manager was Herbie Herbert, who had managed Journey and, and you know, Santana, Carlos Santana, um, you know, a powerful, you know, guy. And he's like, well, I'm going to try to turn this around. And he's like, I think, I think I can find some light at the end of the tunnel. He goes and he meets with Geffen. He comes back with me and says, well, you know that light at the end of the tunnel? I'm like, yeah. He goes, it's a freight train. He goes, these guys, they just push off your second record and they're just going to bury it and they're just going to move on and forget you ever existed. And to this day, we're like the only band that's ever been on that label that after the initial pressing, Geffen never pressed up any more of our CDs. Wow. That's how bad we made. That's how angry we made it. Well, and the crazy thing too is I think a band like Pantera, right? That had a lot of success. Their first record only sold a hundred thousand copies. Right. It, so here we are. sell 160,000 in the first two weeks. We're all over radio. We're all over MTV. It all implodes. There's no follow-up single. There's no follow-up video. They sold the label. They brought in a bunch of accountants to just cut everyone's budget. That also bit us in the ass because right. no more video budgets, no more tour support budgets, nothing. David Geffen had to drop like 160 acts off the label. They had a, you know, because he had a he had a new uh, you know, he had a new partner in the Japanese that bought the label. So it all changed overnight. Nobody would take our phone call. We just had to go away and write songs and, you know, get ready for a second record that they knew they weren't going to do the damn thing. Man, that's got to be super frustrating, especially you're like on Arsenio at that time. You're on Rick D's at that time. So it's not like, I mean, they're pushing you hard in that small, and then you don't get to tour with anybody. In that three week window, it was gangbusters. And as soon as it all imploded, 
everybody was just like rats off a sinking ship. There was no manager at the label to come up with the second game plan. Okay, right. we're going to release this second single. We're going to do a video. We're going to get your records back in the stores. We're going to pick up the move with the momentum that we started. None of that happened. It was all, don't answer that phone call from Little Caesar because we don't have any good answers for that. So it all just went away really quickly. Well, and it's crazy, too, because if I'm correct from reading the book, you're working with Bob Rock in Vancouver, I believe. And you do as you're doing the first record, he leaves you guys for a bit to do Dr. Feelgood. Right. So so Dr. He doesn't doesn't leave to do that. What happened was we had met with Bob Rock. Now, this is you know, he was just the engineer for Aerosmith at this point. Right. And he was going to be producing Motley Crue. So he was definitely a big up and coming producer. Right. So that with him and we said, listen, dude, we're nervous because we don't want to make an Aerosmith glossy record. Right. We want to make a 70s record. Right. We want to make, you know, Bad Company meets Zeppelin meets, you know, Leonard Skinner meets ACDC record. And he's right. like, man, that would be so much fun. Just an honest, straight ahead, throw up microphones, capture the energy of the band. Just get it out there. And oddly enough, that's the exact kind of record that Soundgarden put out, you know, when they first record came out. That's the kind of record we wanted to make. Honest. Well, you heard the personality come through the speakers. All of those Seattle bands, that's what came through the speakers, like it or not. But so Bob is up for this. And we're scheduled to go up to Vancouver to start recording. When all of a sudden the phone rings that John Kaladner had a big fight with Bob Rock and he's not producing our record anymore. So we're like, what are we going to do now? Uh, We'll we'll meet with some different people. Let's get you writing. We'll keep you writing and all this. So Bob books the cult record while they had this big fight. Oh, Sonic Temple, right? Yeah. So they kiss and make up in that month. And Bob's like, and John's like, well, let's start the Caesar record. He goes, no, no, no. I have to do the cult record first. As soon as I'm done with that, we'll do, we'll do Caesar. So meanwhile, Dr. Feelgood's already in the can with, with Bob Rock. That's finished record. He's working with cult. He finishes with the cult. We waited over a year to do our first record. So we're spending all of our money, all of our advance keeping the band alive, and we're completely in mothballs waiting for Bob Rock. They, John would not entertain a second producer name. So we go up to Vancouver to start this 70 sounding record. Now the cult is kind of, you know, they, the cult is way more of a 70 sounding record than Dr. Feelgood. Is, totally agree. You know? Yeah. You know, so we're figuring, okay, you know, so we start recording this record and it's going exactly as we planned. And then, Dr. Feelgood comes out and all of a sudden Bob Rock is the number one producer in the world. Right. And all of a sudden everything changed. It went from Little Caesar, you know, went from Bob Rock making a Little Caesar record to Little Caesar making a Bob Rock record. And all of a sudden the digital machines are rolling in and we're doing overdub after overdub after overdub. And he's taking all the personality out of the band to make it sound slick, polished, and produced. Because Bob Rock now has a brand to protect. So we're like calling down to, to L.A. going, 
uh, this ain't what we talked about. And John's like, go, John Collider's going, don't worry about it. It's Bob Rock. He's got that number one record. Who are you guys to tell Bob Rock what to do? And Jimmy Iovine's going, you know, Jimmy's a producer himself. He's like, let's wait and hear the mixes. Maybe the mixes will be, you know, we don't have to use all that crap. We're like, yeah, but we're spending a lot of money recording all this. Right. And Jimmy's like, don't worry about it. I'll call the label. I'll get you some more money. Yeah, it's money we got to pay back. Of course, <laughs> you know? which people don't realize. But, you know, but it's Jimmy Iovine calling to John Kalodner, who's calling to David Geffen. Which Check are all it, huge you know? names in the industry for the listeners right. who so don't know that. Who's going to... So the word is on the records going great up in Vancouver. They just need some more money, you know? So we're up there for six months. Great records are made in six weeks, not six months, you know? So we're up there spending all this money on all these Dover dubs. It comes down to mixing the record. And all of a sudden I'm going, see, this ain't the record we talked about. And that's when the fight started going between Kalodner, Jimmy Iovine, everybody. So what you hear on the first record is actually a toning down of what Bob Rock wanted to do with the band. And I'm going, listen, man, we're not that kind of band. You can't keep putting out these overproduced slick records like Winger and Warren, Whitesnake and, you know, all of these bands. And I said, kids want an alternative to this. Sure enough, Seattle starts and what do they label it? Alternative. Alternative, yep. You know, so all of a sudden now, you know, so here's Nirvana making 70 sounding honest records. Here's Soundgarden making 70 sounding honest records. Here's Pearl Jam making 70 sounding honest records. And that's what we wanted to do. So lo and behold, you know, here's this guy wearing flannel shirts with a goatee all tattooed up and little Caesar. The next thing you know, I'm getting shit about looking that way from John Kalodner. Wear prettier clothes. You guys look like axe-murdering bikers, and the record sounds pretty and slick. And I'm going, that's why I didn't want to make a slick, pretty record. Right. right. Now you want me to fucking wear frilly shirts and shave my goatee and be something we're not because you want us to look like what the record sounds like when it should have been the other way around. And sure enough, it bit us in the ass. People were like, wait a minute. How is a band that looks like, you know, they're in the Hell's Angels put out like ballads like In Your Arms and Wish It Would Rain and people are going, the music doesn't match the look and it confused people. And I was like, that's exactly what I was telling you when we were recording this goddamn thing to not make it so slick and so overproduced where you took all those rough edges off and it didn't sound rough. We just looked rough. And it's it's frustrating because listen to you tell this, it's like if if he puts the record out that you guys were on the same page with a year earlier, history's a lot different. Yeah, well, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. Right, right. But like but what I'm hearing is because I'm as a as a younger kid remembering that. Not only does Bob Rock do that, Bob Rock starts developing this amazing drum tone. He does the Metallica Black album. He does the Motley Crue record with Karabi. Um, he's doing, I believe he did the David Lee Roth record too, the Little Ain't Enough. He did a lot of that stuff in Vancouver. Yeah, well, Bob, Bob becomes a brand. And the, the funny thing is, is 
when we were up there doing this, and this is after Motley Crue goes number one, we're in there and we're getting really nervous because he's he's getting that that classic Bob Rock anal retentive that you see during the documentary Metallica. Yeah. Starts getting that way with us, you know, where he's just making us do pass after pass after pass. And the, the, the interesting thing is, is right at the same time, Brian Adams was trying to do a record with Mutt Lang and it was taken forever because it's Mutt Lang. Mutt Lang, another guy like that, yeah. Now, Brian and, and Bob are good friends and they live up in, you know, Bob, Brian lives up in Vancouver. They're both managed by Bruce Allen. So a lot of the days, Bob has me cutting vocals with Randy Stout, the engineer, while Bob is running off to record Brian Adams' record. And he's sneaking off and doing his record and not telling Mutt Lang that he's helping Brian produce his own record because it can't get done. Wow. So it's just this weird shit going on all at the same time. Yeah, it, man, it sounds like it too. And then, like you said, we talked about Seattle for a second. It, it Seattle changed everything. So it's like that small window, you know, where everything started changing. I remember talking to Tracy Guns, and he was talking about when they were out and tour in Europe, and 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 they actually had played some dates and saw Nirvana playing out there, and he's like, "This is gonna be the next biggest fucking thing." This is gonna yeah. knock everybody on its ass, and that took a while too. Like most people don't understand, Nirvana came out, and it wasn't like the next you know, next biggest thing. Seattle didn't really happen, happen until about the spring or seven or 92. So you still have that right. time to, you know, I mean, people well, forget. But the uh, thing was, is that Nirvana was exploding, but this is when the same stupidity that happened in the eighties, where record companies signed every band that sounded like Winger, Warren, Poison, put whatever name in, that's when they started rushing up to Seattle to find every band that sounded like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains. And they made the same fucking mistake all over again. So Nirvana, some people are going, is this a one-off or is this like a, a trend? And it took a little while before it became the trend, meaning that record companies basically threw the baby out with the bathwater dumped all their hair metal bands all they were signing were you know guys in flannel shirts who kept their backs to the audience and were really dark you know so oh, it was an oversaturation like you just said in the 80s the same yeah. thing you know and that it's never good too it's never good right it's never good and it's like pearl jam we got creed but we got nickelback you know it's like you know you can hear the sonic evolution where they started signing Everybody's singing like this, you know, you know, <laughs> you know, and it's like, then Creed comes out and, you know, he's singing just like that. And then there's, you know, and, and it just became, oh my God, they're doing it all over again, you know? No, you're, remember, you're not wrong. I remember sitting in the studio doing our second record that I knew was not going to see the light of day. And all of a sudden I look up and there's Chris Cornell with the same curly hair that I got and the goatee. Remember, I had a goatee. Nobody had a goatee. Nobody had any facial hair in a fucking band. One band did, the guy in Zodiac Mind War. Yep. And they were, weren't very big. So here I am with a goatee 
And I'm sitting there going, goatee, curly hair, flannel shirt, torn up blue jeans. I'm fucked. This guy, first of all, he's 10 times better looking than me. Fuck that guy. <laughs> he can sing his he can sing his fucking ass off. His record sounds honest and real and fresh. I am fucked. and you knew it too and that's the sad thing because it's like you guys were a good band so it's not like you were a bad band it's frustrating because mtv dropped dropped basically styles of music like a hot potato you know oversaturation kills it too you don't have any push from the label so it's like it's like you're just selling off to see i don't even have a video to put out we finally did some cheap video for a single just contractually on a, on a track called Stand Up on the second record that MTV played for five minutes. But Geffen actually told MTV, don't push it because we're not putting any money behind this band. Man, that's So crazy. they were like, okay, three weeks later, away, bye-bye. Goes away. Can you tell the listeners, if you don't mind, because I thought this was interesting in your book, how you were kind of, your hands were tied with the way that Geffen actually treated you walking into the meeting and basically holding on to you and basically making your band fail that way. But, oh, we can have you write stuff for the label and do stuff well, like that. This is what happened. When when it all went badly and I started to do interviews about how messed up Geffen Records was internally, and David Geffen was angry and embarrassed by that, when he made the decision to just snuff out the band and make it go away, we got through the second record, so it's time. Okay, the contract is coming due. We need to go have the meeting over at the label as to what they're going to do next. So I walk in there with our attorney and our manager at the time, and here I am, you know, with their attorney and the president of the label, this guy Eddie Rosenblatt, and you know we're having this meeting, and you can tell they're just about to tell me that, you know. It's over. And then David Geffen pops in and he sits down and he's like, okay, so listen, this is how it's going to go. The reality is, is that you really embarrassed our business. And I know right now that there's, I can name five labels right now that will sign your band in five minutes time. And if you do that and you go over to say Epic or Columbia or whatever, Electra, and all of a sudden, Little Caesar breaks. It's going to make Geffen Records look really bad. It's going to validate everything you said about what's wrong with Geffen Records right now. I can't have that. So we're going to let you go. You can't go and reform on another label. The way that I'm going to stop that happening is by exercising what's in every contract called a key man clause. And what a key man clause is, is that the label gets to decide they sign you as an act, but they sign you as individuals. And they can let the other four guys go and hold on to a key man, whoever they choose that to be. In that case, it was me. So he's like, so the way I prevent you from reforming on the label is to hold you, asshole, the one that told all this shit about what was happening behind the scenes, to the key man clause. Now, if you think you can fight me on this, go ask Don Henley or Neil Young who wins these battles when we have arguments? They'll both tell you that I'm going to win because I collect artists like I collect my artwork. And if I want to put you up on the shelf, I can put you up on the shelf. And he gets up and walks out. 
And I'm like, I'm fucked. (laughs) I am fucked. Wow. And that's exactly what happened. And you know what, man? That's just a business guy being a business guy. You know, I mean, it is fucked up on a human level. But he's a businessman, and yeah. business is a rough and tumble business. It's a rough and tumble world. And so, you know, it's like, okay, maybe I should have kept my fucking mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> it's the way it goes, man. You know? And you had some interesting stuff happen to you. Like I said, I don't want to give too too much away from the book, but listeners buy this book. I'm telling you right now, I've read just about all of it and it's a great read. Like I told you earlier in the, in the episode, it's really a history lesson too. You get to peek behind the curtain. Um, one thing that surprised the hell out of me is I had no idea that you were almost a singer of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yes. In 1986, um, you know, this is Chili Peppers are put out a record. I think they were on, I think they were on EMI or I don't know. EMI sounds right. EMI sounds right. Yeah, Before they went with Ruben. EMI. Didn't have a big success on the first record. You know, they, they, they did okay, but they were not high expectations. They were kind of a quirky band. So at this point, Anthony was doing a lot of heroin. He, he had a real heroin problem. And later, so did Hillel, who wound up overdosing and dying. But at the time, this is right. They were just getting ready to do the uh, Uplift Mofo Party Plan record. And they kicked Anthony out of the band because they just realized that this band's going nowhere with Anthony's drug problems. So they kick him out, and somebody told Flea about me. So we got together, and we hit it off really well. He liked my rhythm and blues and blues bass because he's a huge fan of old blues and soul. And he wanted to get the Chili Peppers to have more melody and singing in it. Because at that time, Anthony Anthony had to do a lot of work. And he talked about this, a lot of work on his own vocal technique to become more of a singer. Because he was really just a rapper. And Flea wanted to try to widen the lane of the band. So I had written all melodies and lyrics to that record. And we started with their producer, Michael Beinhorn, in Capitol Records Studio demoing all these songs and it was an incredible experience i i have to say that flea is probably in the top three most talented people i've ever seen or certainly in getting the chance to play with his passion um his his conviction for music is unrivaled by anybody and it's matched by all the guys in the band well anyway you know, we started to do this, and the next thing you know, Anthony gets out of rehab, and him and Flea sit down, and they have a heart-to-heart. And the reality is is that Flea and Anthony are family, way before they're band members. And Flea decided to, you know, bring Anthony back into the fold and kick me out, which was the smartest thing he ever did. Now, and that's, is Jack Irons playing drums at that time? Yes, Jack is on drums, Hillel's on guitar, and Flea is on bass. I mean, Jesus Christ, you talk about monster players. I mean, the grooves that we would be jamming on, because I'm an old R&B funk blues dude, you know, at my core. So you're in heaven right there, basically. I'm in heaven. And, like, one of the first questions Flea asked me is, do you have a problem doing a show with oh, just a sock on your dick? <laughs> I was like, a uh, what? He's like, yeah, we go out, we do shows with just socks on the dick. And I'm like, 
yeah, I'll just wear a sock on my dick, whatever, I don't care. Right. And then the next thing he said to me was, can you sing every note at rehearsal? Every note you sing, can you sing it like it's the last note you might ever get to sing? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, because that's the way we approach music. We don't know when this is ever going to get taken away from us, and it's precious to us. So we approach every moment like it could be the last. And I got to tell you, man, that's real. And if I've seen like 60 Minutes did a documentary, and he's still approaching his music exactly like that. Yeah, you can and tell. God bless him for doing so, man, because he's just a one of the kind. Now, let me ask so, you yeah, this. Monster group of guys to make music. Let me ask you this. Um, are you are all the stuff that you're working on, does that all make future records? I, I don't understand your question. So you said you guys were demoing songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he basically, all that same exact music, he just threw out all my melodies and lyrics, and Anthony rewrote everything. The record came out. You know, Michael kept working with them, and they went in and did, you know, they recut everything. But the demos and the record sound really, really similar. I used to have a cassette of the demos, but that's when I crashed and burned and got divorced and it got thrown out with a tub of, you oh, know, big God. Tupperware tub of a hundred thousands, you know, cassette tapes. That, wow. You know, um, so I never got to hear it again. But there were some pretty funny songs in there. There was one song called James Brown Sphincter. That was the title <laughs> of the song. And the the song was based on James Brown. He's kind of the godfather of soul, and nobody knows where his power comes from. And you want to know? It comes from his asshole. That's where his soul comes from. It comes from his asshole. Now, if you know the Chili Peppers, that's the kind of song that they would write. Something oh. that's so fucking off the wall, funny, and it had melody and... I remember the hook, you know, and Flea loved it. He thought it was fucking great and hysterical and he liked the melody, but it didn't make it on the record. <laughs> <So> <laughs> that's a, that's amazing though, man, that you have that experience. The Bonnie Raitt story blew my mind right. in your book. That was amazing. How hard was it to write the book? I mean, I don't think most people maybe listening to the show don't have an understanding of how much goes into a book. You, you had somebody that co-wrote with you. Did they co-write yes. or did they listen and to it, stories that you told? How yes. did that work? I mean, the, way, the way that, it, I mean, people have been telling me I should write a book for decades. Once I do an interview, a podcast, because once you hear everything from Mom Schwarzenegger to Bonnie Ray to the Red Hot Chili Peppers to Gene Simmons, they're like, dude, you should write this shit down, you know? So I had done an, a couple of podcasts with Steve Olivas, who happens to be, um, he, you know, he said, listen, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I'm like, yeah, people always bring it up to me. He goes, well, I'm, I'm an author, and I would love to help you put this all together to write a book. And it turns out he's also a licensed psychologist. And knowing my history and knowing that I believe that self can't reveal self to self. In other words, you're too close to it to be able to stand back and look at your own stories and see what's a good story, how short should you make the story, what's the main point of the story. I couldn't do it. I'd be going on and on and on for days and days on the stupidest trivial bullshit. So he's like, I think I can, can do this with you. 
And we just started to do hours and hours and hours of interviews. And he put it all into a cohesive timeline and put it into a voice that was my own by, by understanding who I was, understanding the way I spoke, to be able to put that together in stories and in a timeline that actually made sense where I read it and I'm like, oh my God, if I wasn't such a wordy, mouthy asshole, this is exactly how it would turn out. And he did, he did such a great job. And he really pulled a lot of things out of me um, to be self-reflective and I think to make the stories actually more illuminating and interesting because of who he is as a writer, who he is as a psychologist, and because he's got a twisted sense of humor just like I do. So. Oh, dude, it's, I'm telling you right now, I, I it made me go back and listen to more of your music. It, it brought great. me That's back. A great thing to do. It's true. And it brought me, it brought me back to like being in high school, you know, when, when your career was, was taken off for those first couple of weeks where the sky looked like the limit. I remember those names. I remembered every name in the book that you were talking about the, the opportunities you had, the opportunities you didn't get. It's just, to me, it's a really, it, it's, it, it's something I couldn't put down. I read it pretty fast and enjoyed it. Um, is there a story that didn't make the book that you wish did that you could share with us? No, I have to say, you know, the one good thing about, Basically having no, I'm accountable to no one anymore. I'm not on a corporation. I know I'm never getting another record deal. I know David Geffen hates me already. I know John Kalodner hates me already. I know Bob Rock hates me already. So I don't, there's no reason to pull any punches on any of that stuff. Um, I'm not embarrassed by anything in my past. So I have no secrets. The only thing that I did edit out was there were a bunch of stories about some people that were redundant pointing out how kind of crazy they might be or how sort of, you know, like Gene Simmons, it was probably three or four minor stories that I pulled out because it just sounded like I was a fanboy fixated. Oh my God, you're not going to believe this one too. Sure. The main ones came out, the ones that really, from my experience showed just who Gene Simmons is in his best and worst times. And honestly, Everybody in the music business has a Gene Simmons story. I knew I wasn't going to ruffle any feathers. Gene comes out all the time and says, oh, yeah, that's that's probably how it went down. <laughs> you know, so I, I felt no reason to filter really anything other than for just simple editing. I love that vibe in the book, too. I remember I remember reading some of it, like, you know, the part you're talking about. Well, it's a well-known industry thing that, you know, they wear wigs. And I was like, whoa, OK, here we go. <laughs> like, yeah. No. And, and you know, Gene himself, does, he he says it. He's, he doesn't care. It's, he calls it his rock helmet. You know, time to go put on the rock helmet. And the story I tell with his mom is hysterical, you know. Oh, that was a great story. That's a great yeah, his story. His mom calling him out, you know, calling the band the orchestra. This little Israeli woman who's not even, and she's like four foot tall. And she walks up to him while he's in his giant boots and tugs on his cape. And he, she's like, so Chaim, she calls him Chaim because that's his name. His real name, right? Right, Chaim, Chaim. The orchestra's done playing now. Do you take off your hairpiece? <laughs> and everybody in the hallway is like, ooh, you know, oh, my God. And 
he just lovingly pats her on the head and goes, yes, mom, the rock helmet is coming off short. Yes. And he, so he doesn't care about any of that crap. He's so beyond that. It's not like there's any secret being told about it. So. Well, and his mom, I mean, you can tell his mom still lays the law, and, right? <laughs> yeah, still his mom, still, you know. And, and it's funny because, like, they, like, I tell the story about Shannon, you know, his wife, coming out on tour with the kids, you know. And at this point, they weren't married. And Gene would be like, I'm not getting married. Give her half of everything. And I'm like, dude, you live in California. You, you have, like, kids together and you've been together for, like, 12 years. Common she's law. Getting of, she's getting half of everything anyway. Yep. He's like, yeah, well, I don't even want to talk about that. It makes my skin freak out. You know, you know, so just hysterical stuff. And every day on on the backstage dressing room table would be his book of Polaroids right in front of his girlfriend of him going down on a thousand girls or them sucking his dick. And and I asked her, does this bother you? And she goes, oh, that is Gene. You know, it's wow, like, that's insane. Just, but it just shows how much she loves him for who he is. And she knows it's all silly rock and roll bullshit. It doesn't mean anything. You know, he doesn't do that stuff anymore. So that's all she cares about, you know? I love that you're still playing. I think that's cool. Did you ever lose the love of music during all this stuff? Did you ever oh, get to God, the point? Yeah, in, that period, in that period where the band took a hiatus, when, when it was over and it all came apart, um, you know, I had tried, you know, I did something with the guys from Whitesnake and I tried to resurrect Horsemen. It was all the stuff I was doing in the sort of middle 90s. And then it just got to the point that I was just so burnt on the business and all of the trying to push water uphill that I just, and it's funny because I got into music behind the scenes production. I was running a venue in LA called the Key Club, which was a really nice venue up on the Sunset Strip. So here I am as the production manager and I'm loading in Bon Jovi, I'm loading in Prince, you know, Van Halen, doing these sort of, you know, because they would do these specialty shows for radio stations there. And people are like looking at me like, I kind of recognize you. I wouldn't tell anybody who I was. You know, I just wanted to be the production manager. And I remember once Tracy Guns came in to do a show at the Key Club, and I hadn't seen him because we tried to put a band together a couple of times. Tracy came in with LA Guns, and they're playing at the, at the Key Club, and He's like, he sees me, gives me a big hug. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm the production manager. He goes, you're the same Ron Young? That I was like, yeah, that's me. He's like, oh, my God, dude. And he grabs my hand. He's like, dude, he goes, you know, don't give up. You're a great singer. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Tracy. You think that I'm the production manager here because I can't make music? I'm doing it because I don't want to make music. See, let me explain something, Tracy. You're going to get back in that van and drive to the mason jar in Phoenix after this show. I'm going home to my own house. I own my own house now because I'm working a day job. So don't feel sorry for me, brother, because I'm not still out there trying to do it. 
And, you know, this was in that period when bands like L.A. Guns, they're starting to have to cut back on crew. They're starting to have to cut back on the buses. They're starting to cut back on everything because, you know, now it's if you're not in a grudge band, you're not getting the money anymore. So it was a weird time in music. But, yeah, that period of time, I, I didn't want to have nothing to do with Chuck. I don't blame you, man. And and, and uh, everything you just talked about, super true, man. I got a buddy of mine who I told I was interviewing you. And he's like, man, he goes, I met him at the key club. My band was playing there and I recognized him. And he said he was, he said you were cool as hell. So, so totally lined up with exactly what you said, man. And, and, uh, oh, yeah, no, you know what? I really got, I really got off. I was, I ran, I ran that place for almost 10 years. I really got off on helping other musicians, facilitating other musicians shows teaching young bands how to talk to monitor engineers good how to be quick setting their gear up and you know like dude you can't come in here with like 87 pedals. It, you're the opening band it, it's it, you got to trim it down to one or two pedals you just shoot yourself in the foot you know so teaching them all these lessons that <clears throat> young bands need to hear from a guy that's been you know from our little stages up to playing with Kiss, this is what this is what you need to focus on, dude. It's not your Bradshaw rig or your daisy chaining of effects. Until you become the headliner, dude, you're gonna have to strip this shit down. You know that kind of stuff. No, nah, it's it's very important, man. I remember one of my first lessons is don't piss off the the don't piss off the house guy. Don't piss off the yeah. head, the, the lead sound and guy. Learn learn how to talk to your monitor engineer. You can't just go, I need more vocal in the wedge. Which vocal, which wedge? So you got to say, I need more stage right vocal in downstage center left wedge, please. Yeah, hand signals. please at the end. And boom, because there's a million knobs that they have. If you're going to waste even 30 seconds on the communication portion of it, you're just cutting into your sound check. Now you're smart, man. I did a lot of hand signals when I did that stuff. I point to the guitar, up, yeah. down, point at the monitor. Never get on the mic and go, hey, monitor, asshole. I can't hear <laughs> No. While the solo, guitar solo is, walk over to the monitor and go, can I get a little bit more vocal? Thank you. And go back out smiling. Never call the guy out in, the way, in, in front of the house. Never do that. Yeah, I, so, I completely agree those with little, you. Those little things that make for a better show. No, it, it, and, and honestly, it's the communication, right? If you don't have the communication, I mean, <laughs> boy, I've You're been like. You're never going to get what you want if you don't know how to ask. No, so, very, very, very true. So what's what's in the future for you, Ron? What you got, the book, like I said, everybody listening, pick up this book. It's a it's a great, I mean, I'm, I'm not giving away the whole book because there's oh, yeah, stories, there's like you said. More, there's a whole lot more. Oh, good. There's so much more. The Arnold Schwarzenegger story made me laugh out loud. There's. The, the Bonnie Raitt story, I'm not, I don't want you to say a word about it because I really want people to, to read that story. That's an amazing story. The Chili Peppers one blew my mind. There's other ones in there that, you know, there's like, God, there's what, six or seven Gene Simmons stories, you know. Yeah, a bunch of Gene Simmons stories about meeting Fidel Castro, you know. The Castro one was crazy. Yeah, yeah. That's in the same realm as the Bonnie Raitt thing. But, yeah, what's coming up is just just loving to make music with guys that I love making it with from people that I love making it for. And, you know, we're going out and doing like a four show run here with Junkyard who are old, old friends. Um, 
you know, so we go way back and we just laugh and, and have so much fun making music. And I got this other side project called Crusados. That was a band that was out in the 80s on, on Arista Records. And I'm, I'm fronting that. We're going over to Europe for a month. And then, um, yeah, getting, you know, got to get back in the studio to finish some song ideas up and get in recording studio for Caesar and trying to do weekend dates, you know, flying out to like Philly and Atlantic City and New York and Boston and Detroit and, you know, Cleveland and, you know, just doing fly-in dates because, A, we all have like real lives and jobs that we can't just go out and play rock and roll fantasy for any long period of time. And secondly, because it's really hard to do in the United States, you know, just trying to get across Texas takes three days. So, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's a lot different in the States than it is in Europe where we can go to a different country in two hours. You know, are, so. are you guys getting those opportunities to play like Rocklahoma and stuff like that or no? Well, we did M3. You know, this is the honest problem. We came up in L.A. during hair metal. A lot of people, we're still fighting. The, I know we're from L.A. from the late 80s, but we're not a hair metal band. So don't keep sticking us on these hair metal festivals. Nothing wrong with that. That music is great and those fans are great. But we stick out like a bit of a sore thumb when we play on those things. So that's why we're trying to stick stick with like-minded bands, sonically like-minded bands. And just, I'd rather pack out a club than play at 12 o'clock in the afternoon on a festival with, you know, Bullet Boys, Pretty Boy Floyd, Tough, you know, all the bands that do that circuit. Um, great bands, but just, we don't necessarily... It's not the best match. You know? Right, right. For like you guys, like a, a Tom Kiefer Cinderella thing would be great. Like Tesla, Junkyard, you know, yes, those type of yeah. bands fit a perfectly. A little bit more blues-based stuff. You know, um, yeah, Tom's a great guy. You know, just because that's the other thing. You know, there are still bands from the 80s, especially from the 80s coming from the Sunset Strip. Now, a lot of those bands, I am not going to name any names, but raging assholes egotistical raging assholes who are just angry that they don't have the careers that they used to have then there's bands from that time period that get it they're just super nice warm down-to-earth guys guys like john karabi and tom keeper and they just get it man and they love just making music and they're easygoing and they're generous and they're just grateful and there's such a pleasure to be backstage with and talk stories with and get caught up with. And then there's other guys that you just run to the other side of the arena because you don't even want to see them. <laughs> and, you know, and you can read about them on Metal Sludge all day long, you know, but it's you got to find the good ones to hang out with and do shows with. And you being sober makes a difference too, doesn't it? I mean, that that's got to be a different... Scenario. Yeah, because I at least know I'm an asshole. <laughs> you know, when people come up to me and go, dude, you're being an asshole, I go, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> being an asshole. You know, um, yeah, like the sober thing, you know, there's a lot of guys who are sober now, you know, and they're they're public about it. I won't, you know, one of the things that, you know, the anonymous part of AA is just keep it anonymous. But, you know, I... 
once I got over my heroin thing, I was never much of a drinker because of my alcoholic mom and cocaine just kept me up at night and made me chew a hole in my cheek. And, you know, there isn't any drugs left that I would, you know, do and drinking. I'm, I'm too old, man. Just staying up past my bedtime. I feel hungover, you know? So <laughs> there's a lot of guys in bands now that are sober, you know, and, and they work hard at it. There's other guys that say they're sober. But they're but they're not right. It's they're not. You know what? That's on them. Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to I want to plug this real quick because you didn't mention it, but you mentioned it in your book, and it made me go back and listen to it because uh, one of the first gigs I had working in the studio was uh, when White Snake was doing their Restless Heart album. I was just a gopher, right? And uh, I remember one day Adrian Vandenberg was making uh, sausage in the kitchen, and I'm laughing because I'm like, I'm just sitting right next to him, and they tell you don't talk to, don't talk to the, you know, whatever. And he's just, and yeah, he was so cool. He was like, hey, how's it going? And Adrian, Adrian is such a sweet, talented guy. He's just super cool, incredibly talented guy who's just. He's just so good natured and he's warm and he's generous and he's talented. He's just a super guy. So I, I know what you're getting. I did this project in, in the mid nineties called Manic Eve. Right. Now right. this is at the height of grunge and a lot of these bands, unless it was the actual brand of white snake, the market value was a little questionable from the corporate idiots as to you know, what, what might be profitable and what might be, might not be. Adrian wanted to do this side project outside of White Snake um, with Rudy Sarzo and Tommy Aldrich called Manneke. And it was like a stripped down progressive blues kind of record in that sort of Hendrix cream, you know, kind of, you know. Band of, band of, gyp band of gypsies is the vibe I got band for sure. Gypsies. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Adrian had all these songs and, and a bunch of songs that needed to be finished. The original singer for that project was going to be James Christian and um, from House of Lords. And it, Adrian just didn't think it was right. So they parted ways and I got a phone call from him and I went in and we did a couple of rehearsals and Adrian's like, oh man, this is exactly what we were looking for. So we go in and we do this record and you know, we finish it and it's a goddamn good record. It really is. It really is. Honest, you know, Adrian, you get to see a side of Adrian's playing that you don't get to see in White Snake or even in Vandenberg. Vandenberg, right. You know, so he got to really, you know, pay tribute and homage to the guys that he loved and, you know, he cut his teeth on. And we couldn't get the goddamn thing released. Every, you know, it, originally the deal was, was the funding came for JDC in Japan. We delivered the record to them and they were disappointed because they were expecting a white snake. You know, this is now Japan, hair metal and, and you know, that kind of stuff stuck around way longer. Grunge never took off in Japan. So all of these bands were still huge in Japan. Pardon the joke. You know? Right, right. And so JDC funded this record and they thought it was going to be a white snake record. And they got to hear this progressive blues thing. And they kind of scratched their head a little bit. Um, it did really well over there. It sold a few hundred thousand records, 
So Adrian smartly held on to the distribution in the rest of the world. So he starts shopping it in the U.S. and nobody put it out. They wouldn't even listen to the goddamn thing. They're like, yeah, no, everybody that's in this band is just going to think White Snake, and White Snake's really kind of out, you know, it's out of fashion. And I'm sitting there, and Adrian's going, am I crazy? But between me, Rudy, and Adrian, between me, Rudy, and Tommy, we've sold tens of millions of albums between Quiet Riot and White Snake and Vandenberg. So nobody wanted to put this thing out, even listen to it. So finally, late in the game, it came out on um, a label out of Europe. I'm going great then, you know. But at that point, Adrian and everybody was waiting so long, they're running out of money. I could just pay, just pay. You know, they had to get back out there. So Adrian, you know, went back to working with David and White Snake, and actually, I think all three of them wanted to. Um, and so it never, it never really took off. But I hear it's getting a reissue. You know, um, a lot of fun to make. I, I really, I owe those guys an amends because while I was doing that records, when I was sneaking off to the bathroom to smoke heroin. Um, and I was, you know, kind of a miserable son of a bitch, but I think I cut it on the vocals. I took care of my business, you know, and I wish it would have, I wish it would have went longer. It's, it's a great sounding record. You can find it on YouTube. That's how I found it. And, uh, it's funny because if, if you said, if you put a gun to my head and said, who's the guitar player on this record, I would not be able to, I would not be able to say Adrian Vandenberg. Yeah, no, there's there's playing in there. And I remember when he was cutting his, Tom Fletcher produced him. And AGM would be doing, just doing, you know, just give me another track, I'll do another solo. And he would start playing and he would fall back into his fast note Adrian thing. And he would stop himself. No, 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 sorry, sorry, just have it, you know. Um, and he'd go back to... It'd be like a cross between Hendrix and West Montgomery and Stevie Ray Vaughan. And, you know, that's really the kind of his sounds and his playing style. And it was such a pleasure to listen to somebody so effortlessly play those things and to actually kind of tap the brakes on his talent. Because he could have just shredded through a lot of those passages. And he decided to say more with one or two notes than he could with 30. And for a guy like him, that takes a lot of discipline. And I have a lot of respect for him for doing it. Oh, absolutely, man. And, and it's and it served the songs well. And it's something, like I totally. said, for the listeners, please go check out that record, Manic Eden. And Manic. the title of the record is Manic Eden, too, right? Self-titled. Yeah. And it's Adrian's artwork on the cover, too. He's an oh, cool. He's an incredible painter. He's had shows in... in in the Netherlands, art shows in the Netherlands. He's an incredible painter, artist as well. Wow, I would never would have known that. Ron, yeah. it was absolutely awesome having you on the show today. My man. pleasure, Eric. Thank you for such a stimulating conversation and great questions. I really, really appreciate it. I really appreciate that, man. Thank and, you, uh, everybody out there. Thank you. Thank you I really appreciate it, man. Have a great day, all right? 